Gracious God, let these words be more than words. Give us the spirit of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. The revelation to John is not often listed among the top ten favorite books of the Bible for Christians who worship in Episcopal churches. Today, All Saints Sunday, is one of the few Sundays the church consents to read a passage from this suspect book in service. We're suspicious about the revelation, I think in part, because we are loath to think of ourselves as literalists. Folks who consider themselves biblical literalists tend to love the book of Revelation. Many try to calculate the hours, looking for signs of the end times. I once heard a pastor who declared, based on John's revelation, definitively, that Colin Powell was the Antichrist. I worry about definitives when it comes to the Bible, especially with prophecy and visions. I would disagree with my brother pastor about Colin Powell's true identity. This morning, I do want to invite you to spend some time with John's revelation. For all of our supposed enlightenment in the Episcopal Church, for our willingness to subject scripture to the scrutiny of history, I worry that we may be writing some of the hope and blessed assurance out of our faith. This morning, I want to hold together the revelation of John, and I want to explore an anxious question. What happens to us when we die? I call this an anxious question because Christians have created a lot of anxiety around the inquiry. What happens to us when we die? Do we go to heaven or hell? Do we, as Socrates said, fall into a restful, dreamless sleep? Does our consciousness simply cease? Does the answer depend on how we lived our lives? They tell writers and preachers not to ask a question in your text unless you plan to provide an answer. I'm afraid I will break that rule today. I don't have all the answers, even with two theology degrees. Death, in so many ways, continues to be a mystery. Death can be a painful mystery. We pray not painful for those who die, But even a peaceful death is often painful for the loved ones left behind. The feeling is strange when someone you have loved, someone you have leaned on, is no longer there. It feels somehow unsteady. In a society like ours, a culture that prefers scientific certainty, questions like, what happens to us when we die, they can be hard questions with which to grapple. Likewise, for those of us who bring academic tools like linguistics, sociology, and archaeology to scripture, it can be easy to dismiss revelations and prophecies. But if we dismiss books like Revelation, when we come up against the mystery of death, we don't have the language, the images, the assurance. So I want to hold on to that image from today's reading in the Revelation to John. It really is quite striking. A countless multitude stands before God, 
robed in white, from every language and tribe and people and nation. This image of diversity is also an image of wholeness. John leaves no one out, not even the persecuting Roman leaders. John envisions a heavenly banquet as a sign of completeness, of wholeness. All God's people are there around the throne. This image of wholeness is an image of hope. The image stands in contrast to the vision that came before. You might have noticed our reading started with after this. The previous several verses of John's revelation have listed the 144,000 people who will be saved. Maybe you've heard that number before. Here is the danger with literalism. You have to pick and choose which verses to be literal about. Just after those lists of numbers comes our passage today. And we have a vision of wholeness. If you read just the first half of chapter 7 of the Revelation of John, you might think that heaven has a fixed seating capacity. Then John looks again. And behold, the countless multitude. All God's people are there. All of them. That vision of wholeness is worth holding, worth contemplating. John's revelation stands in contrast to theologies that say, when we die, some of us go to heaven and some go right to hell. At Theology on Tap on Tuesday night, we'll talk a bit about the development of the doctrines of heaven and hell, the different things Christians have believed over time about death. Suffice it to say for this morning, heaven and hell are oversimplification. For most of Christian history, the old phrase, may she rest in peace and rise in glory, was a fair summary of Christian theology. The vision of Revelation and the visions often described by Jesus of a last day, they were seen as eventual. That is, they, they, that is to say, they were coming events. Christians believed that those who died were at rest until that day, that last day. St. Paul had to reassure the Corinthians in his first letter that their loved ones were asleep in Christ. They would still rise in glory. Most Christian teaching about life and death over the centuries involves these two steps. Rest until the last day and rising like Christ in the general resurrection. Jesus' conquering of death on Easter morning is seen as our conquering as well. We too will rise. What happens on that last day? Isn't that the day of judgment? And the images of judgment are strong in the Bible. Matthew, in the later chapter, has Jesus talking about sheep and goats. Revelation has images of gnashing teeth. Again, I find today's image a compelling contrast to our cultural image of heaven and hell. This vision of wholeness, of completeness, every tribe, language, people, and nation, the countless multitude that appears for John. Notice, they're not there to be judged. The crowd has not appeared to wait in line before St. Peter with his big book. No, they're already gathered round the throne, and they've come to sing. 
Their songs ring through the heavens, giving praise to God. They rise in glory. Christian mystics will often talk about prayer as an early taste of the heavenly banquet. We say that of the Eucharist, the sacramental prayer. We say that we get a taste of heavenly food. I find it to be more and more true for me that I can feel that taste in a congregation that looks like the crowd in Revelation. When I look around the room and I see people from different tribes, languages, nations, colors, genders, and orientations, I get a sense that what we are doing is connected to God's eternal work in this world. Now, you might get the impression from all of this that I am a universalist, that I believe all people are saved. My response to you is a complicated yes. The wild crowd in Revelation today cries out, salvation belongs to God. Who is saved is not up to me. Still, I think the state of your soul matters. That's what makes it complicated. This last day that John describes seems like a really good party, which I find a useful image for eternity. See, I believe in free will. I think it is possible that some folk might not enjoy a really good party. I think that the human soul has the capacity to tie itself up in angry, hateful, and frustrated knots. In life, some of us get really tied up. Even after some blessed rest, I want to hold out the possibility, for the sake of free will, that some souls might arrive to the heavenly banquet a little grumpy, a little haggard. Some people might choose to sulk in a corner, at least for a little while. Notice how the passage ends. John was writing to Christians who faced persecution. In the midst of a military empire that conquered and controlled, Christians stood for love, and they suffered. These are they that have come out of the great ordeal, John hears, and God will wipe away every tear. In death, God shields the soul from any future suffering. God grants rest and sustenance, yes. But God's love is not just a shelter for the eternal future. The countless multitude will receive comfort for the past. Whatever the experiences and trials faced in life, in death we will be made whole, John says. I can only speak for me, but that vision of eternal love I imagine that kind of love will eventually turn the hearts of the most knotted soul. How do you measure the state of a soul? Today we celebrate the Feast of All Saints. Historically, we've been able to point to some souls that got it right. Today we celebrate not just one saint or another, not just Lucy or Francis or Barnabas or Sarah. We celebrate all of them. Now, saints are sort of tricky business for Episcopalians. Like many things, we make them more complicated than we have to. We're not exactly sure what to do with saints. We have a calendar. Actually, we have about four different calendars of saints. 
And our governing body, the General Convention of the Episcopal Church, sort of left a mess of which one we're supposed to be following. I'm not sure which saints we're actually counting at the moment. So we're a little unsure about the saints officially, but unofficially, we Episcopalians, we really like saints. We name most of our churches after them. In my view, the best Episcopalian understanding of sainthood comes from the author, Madeline Lingle, writer of that famous book, A Wrinkle in Time. She was an Episcopalian. Madeline used to canonize her own saints. She talked about Saint Johann Sebastian Bach and Saint Einstein. She talked about the lives she looked to, the lives that helped to point her to the divine. I like Madeline's idea, because her saints seem a little more approachable. We know J.S. Bach was a great composer and a very human being. We know Einstein was a genius, and he could be a bit of a mess. Think about that hair. We have a capacity as human beings to hold up certain examples. We learn to be better at this project of humanness by emulation. We learn kindness and gentleness, patience and prayer when we see these virtues modeled by those we admire. We learn to be generous when we see our parents and grandparents faithfully giving away their time, talent and money. We learn prayer when our families pray together over meals or before bed. We learn strength when we walk with a friend who is facing cancer and yet who will still take time to make us laugh. We learn virtues by looking up to others. The capital S saints, which we honor in the church, and the small s saints we honor personally or locally, they help point us in the direction of that heavenly banquet envisioned by John. We measure our spiritual health by their example. I do love that very Episcopalian hymn we just sang for All Saints Day. I sing a song of the saints of God. As an aside, I know the hymn isn't exactly what you would call a fine piece of music. <laughs> Many organists I know have complained about the childish tune, and I can be a bit childish about the words. There are several alternatives to the official verses. My favorite goes like this. And one was a doctor, and one was a queen, and one was both, if you know what I mean. <laughs> but if you continue, you get the best theology in the hymn. The saints of God are just folk like me, and I mean to be one too. There's a deep invitation in the hymn, in the Feast of All Saints, the invitation is to consider how a life well lived in love and in service of others prepares us for life after death. When we ask what happens to us when we die, the saints point us toward an answer. This altar that we've been preparing the last several weeks and that we will bless in a few moments, it points us in the direction. In death, as in life, we are invited to get lost in wonder, in love, in praise. 
We are invited by God to ensure that all people, every tribe and language and people and nation, that all know their invitation to the great banquet. And this day, facing the mystery of death, we have the faithful assurance, the assurance of the saints, the vision of St. John, that in the end we will feast with God, and God will wipe away every tear. Amen.